come to kindergarten class. The Developmentally Appropriate Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to Kindergarten Kiosk. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Kathy. <laughs> You're waving. No one can see you waving. <laughs> I always wave when I say that. <laughs> <laughs> Today we have an interview with James Singer. He's a member of the Navajo Nation and is a co-founder of the Utah League of Native American Voters. He is also a teacher of sociology at Westminster College and Salt Lake Community College. And he's enrolled in a doctoral program in, in the sociology of labor markets and social policy at Utah State University and is currently working on his dissertation research. And he's going to talk to us about multicultural education and teaching students from varied backgrounds. Well, that sounds like a great interview. I'm excited and anxious to hear what he says. So I am James Singer, and I am running for U.S. Senate for Utah. Um, it's the, the, the seat is currently occupied by Senator Orrin Hatch, and so I'd be running up against him in 2018. Okay. And tell me a little bit about your background, which I think is super fascinating. Okay, cool. So... Um, I'm from Kearns, Utah, which is a suburb of Salt Lake City. It's out there on Salt Lake City's west side. It's, um, I'd say, maybe low-income to middle-income area. Um, my father is from the Navajo Nation. So his background, like his education background, came from boarding school. And then he went to California with the uh, Mormon LDS placement program. And so he did some of his schooling and high school during that time over in California. He came to Salt Lake City, and that's where he met my mother. And she's from Cleveland, Ohio. And she kind of comes from um, a single parent uh, household. Her mother um, you know, was, was her, her parent. Her father passed when she was eight years old. And so her mom was working and trying to make ends meet for them. So my parents then uh, try to take the best from both kind of societies, both both cultures, like the best parts of Navajo culture, the best parts from the mainstream white culture, and just try to make the best for us. And so it's really cool to see the the intergenerational mobility in our family where you have my grandmother who still lives in a Hogan on the Navajo reservation with without running water, without electricity. And then my dad kind of had this stable job and stable stable life. And now myself you know, didn't do so great in high school, even though I loved learning. I just didn't like high school that much. Um, graduated with a 2.4 GPA. Ah, I know. It was awful. <laughs> I barely made it. I'm serious. Like night school got me through. That's the only way that I made it through. And then I went for uh, some mission missionary work for the Mormon church in South America. And I was there for two years where I learned Spanish. And I also learned lots of different perspectives of how, uh, you know, American policy is played out in different countries. Mm -hmm. And then I returned home, I started school, and I think I was ready at that point. So I went to Salt Lake Community College, because that's the only place I would accept my, my 2.4 GPA. <laughs> but it was really good because I got into a sociology class. And I was just like, this is amazing. This really helps to explain the things that I had been seeing about the, the intergenerational mobility and explaining poverty at a structural level mm -hmm. and explaining 
um, you know, education as an institution, not just as a classroom. And so it, it really kind of opened some doors for me and, and made me realize things. Not when I was at that time starting, I wanted to be a teacher. I actually wanted to be like a high school or junior high teacher. And I tried to get into this program for teachers at the University of Utah, but for Native Americans to teach in Native American schools. But that year, the funding dropped. And so I was like, oh, no, what do I do? So I know I was like, ah, oh, what, what's going to happen? So I just kept doing sociology. I went to Westminster College on a scholarship. I graduated there with honors. And then after that, I worked on the Navajo Nation as a policy analyst for about a couple years. Um, and, and focusing a lot on governance structures, looking at how traditional notions of of Navajo society, how that could be translated into like the 21st century. Because the kind of governance system they have now was one that was taken from kind of U.S. government and just put into this new model. And so when you do that, there's a lot of things that become consistent, things that don't match up culturally. And, and because of that, there, there are problems that exist at a, at a political level. That's just that that level here, right? That what I'm, what I'm showing here. You can't see it because there's no audio. I mean, there's no video, but I'm showing it here with my hands. Um, even higher than that, though, there's these larger structures. Something that we call settler colonialism, which is this idea of the the settlers, European in origin, usually coming and having like this is our land. This is the way things should be. We have the right way of thinking, the right way of doing, and so we take that that land we take those resources to be ours oh you're on that as natives well then you have to adapt or die and that's this notion of kind of like settler colonialism that we saw not only here in the united states but all over the world so i'm looking at those kinds of things i go back to school to get my master's in community leadership because i wanted to use those ideas from sociology but in a more practical way like how do we make change happen how do i now that I understand how education works or how now that I understand how policy works, how do I make that real for normal people? And so this this program of community leadership was perfect for that. It talked about social change and community organizing and policy work and exploring communities. And so my master's thesis was solely focused on looking at how living wages as a policy could be something that could mitigate poverty. So something very small on a policy level, but something that could have large effects overall. And so I was looking at attitudes and behaviors on that. Then I started directly after that my PhD in sociology of labor markets and social policy. So again, I think social policy is kind of a pattern that I'm seeing for myself. Mm -hmm. But the labor markets part is because I'm really interested in the changes that have happened to the economy since the 1980s. I think as a society, we've been told like, oh, yeah, achieve the American dream. And for maybe our parents or even our grandparents, one person could have worked and been able to provide for the family. But increasingly, it's becoming more difficult. Both parents have to work if those families have both parents in order for just to make ends meet. And so we're seeing that the American dream is becoming less and less attainable. And I'm like, that is a really interesting social phenomena. So it's not necessarily based on someone's personal individual work habits. It's based on these larger, even global trends that are happening. So that was where the labor markets part came in. And this obviously can, cr can cross or intersect into things like education. That's why 
I myself, I, I love teaching. I teach at Salt Lake Community College. I teach at Westminster College. I'm really passionate about pedagogy. It is my actually my minor concentration in at Utah State for the, my PhD. I really, really enjoy it. I'm trying to get people to think in different ways and trying to look at assignments differently, even the classroom and how we set up discussions so that it becomes an actual experience and not just something that happens in an institution. So that's a little bit about me, maybe more than <laughs> I was expecting to share, but that's what it is. It's always very interesting. I'm glad that you shared because I am very fascinated by what you're doing. Um, and I wanted to pick your brain because as an, as an early childhood educator, I'm so concerned with, uh, with poverty, number one, because as, uh, as teachers of preschool kids and kindergarten kids, one thing that we know and we study is how poverty affects those children's brains and the detrimental effects it has on them. And so I wanted to pick your brain about how as teachers, we can support kids in poverty and also how we can be better at teaching kids from cultures other than our own and bringing in more multicultural education. Because I know, I think I had one class on multicultural education, and I honestly am not sure I can remember anything from it other than, you know, talk to the parents and try to understand. And that's all I remember. So it's really sad. No, um, and just kind of jumping off on that point, like I took a class at Utah State um, about, it, it, I guess it was kind of multicultural education type thing. Mm -hmm. But talking to them and they, and even in their program and they said, you know, this isn't a required class for a lot of teachers. It's something that they can add on credentials, but it's not like the basic. And I thought this is really interesting because even as, uh, if, as the United States being a global leader, right, we're, we're interacting more than we ever have with people from other societies. Mm -hmm. And becomes imperative that we understand that our way of thinking and doing things aren't the only way or isn't the only way of thinking and doing things. Mm -hmm. And also added to the fact that we're getting a lot of different of migration patterns coming into Utah mm -hmm. where we're seeing uh, people of color and immigrants of color. Um, that population is expanding, right? And the, the trajectory of those demographics are continuing not only in Utah, but nationwide. So I know you maybe have a couple of folks listening from, from from like California and Texas. This is not news to them either. Like <laughs> yeah. Friends also, maybe even to a larger degree in some areas. So, um, so looking at that, right. Is like thinking how, how do we, how do we do it at a personal level as a teacher? Mm -hmm. How do we do kind of a multicultural perspective? How do we, become aware of whiteness in education. And then on the other side is what's, what are the structural forces that are keeping it, that are keeping education from becoming more multicultural and, and understanding the, the whiteness in its education. So those are these two kind of factors that are going on there. Can you talk more about, about that, like elaborate on the whiteness in education that you sure. Yeah. So, um, Whiteness in education, looking at education from kind of um, a utilitarian perspective, mm -hmm. where we have these notions of kind of this, well, first, Eurocentrism, right? That our way of thinking, especially the European-minded way of thinking, is the best way to do it. And this comes from 
way back 1700s, 1600s, right? Especially during the age of colonialism. It's like, oh, we are so great and we're going to colonize everything, right? <laughs> Um, but when it when it came into enlightenment periods and then as education became more institutionalized in societies, we see that um, there had to be some kind of set standards that became through like they're like, OK, you have to understand this, the, the classics and reading and writing and arithmetic. And the question is, why did we decide on those things? Why did we decide that 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 kind of math was more important than another kind? Like, why do we focus so much on algebra instead of statistics when statistics makes a lot more sense in our daily lives but that's just a side note okay um other things would be like why do we study the kinds of literature that we do why do we put so much focus even today on science and technology and maths and things of that nature why do we focus so much on that and it and it goes to this underlying effect or underlying belief of uh being productive to society, of contributing to the labor market. And so we show our worth to society by how well we can contribute to that market. So as a teacher, right, if you are you are helpful to the market if you are producing good students, right? If they if if they in turn go out into the world and they become good workers, then it's like, wow, our education system is working top notch. That's exactly what we want. Um, but but doing so then by focusing only on that aspect, by focusing only on the labor markets part, then we start to see that other things of importance, um, like the arts and understanding history and understanding the, the importance of playtime and creativity, those things tend to get smushed by standardized tests because of the things that we're looking. And this is this is really interesting because this is a concept in in whiteness. This is a concept of whiteness because it is it is that worldview that originated in Europe and has been kind of perpetuated throughout, and that's how we see our value as a society. Now, not all societies see it that way, and that's where this multicultural lens kind of kinds of come kind of comes through, is that the notion of time, for example, for for a Navajo person is completely different than the notion of time for someone in in the white society, where um, if I see someone. And they're like, hey, come over to the house. And they say, okay, sure, sure. What what time? They're like, oh, come around noon. Okay, noon. And noon, you know, could be whenever. It, it <laughs> that's when when it's like, okay, it's around it's around noon. I'll go put my clothes on. We'll head over because it's just a different way of thinking about things. Mm -hmm. And when the reason why we have time is because it was tied so closely to productivity, which is then in turn tied to this notion of capitalism. And so these things are all very connected. It's one of the first things that kids learn in school. They learn how to tell the clock and they learn how to make change. It's like that time and money. Like those are the first things we're teaching our kids. That is a very white concept. Like in other cultures, it might be like, what about love? What about cooperation? What about uh, working in groups? And so then you start to see these value systems come through. In our society, it's it's very, very highly individualistic. And so we push our students mostly to be atomized. We look at their test scores only. We only look at their progress. Uh, we look at how they interact with other students, but it's still based on them personally and we follow them throughout the whole thing and we we give them directions you can't talk to other students you have to work alone these kinds of things and that goes throughout the entire school system which is really weird because once they get into the labor market 
they have to talk to other people. Uh-huh. It's like already socializing them the wrong way, but because we believe in that notion of individualism, it, it, it totally shapes the rest of the curriculum. Instead, other societies would be like, well, how does the group do on this project? How does the group do with this thing? Or if there is an individual student trying to work out a math problem on the board, um, the students in the, the, the classroom, like in, in some of the countries in Asia, they're like, come on, you can do it, you can do it. They're, they're very excited to see their classmates do well. Well, here, it's a lot about competition, and we're like, oh, I don't want that other student to do well because then it makes me look bad, and so on and so forth. So this really can affect, then, the, the kinds of policies that we do at a structural level, right, at the at the board of education, um, from the state or even the federal government, all the way down to the actual teacher, which says, well, how can I atomize my students more? <laughs> so I think that that's a very, it is a very white concept of yeah. education. It's interesting because as you're talking, I've done a lot of training in math especially, and what we're learning about how kids best learn math is that we should be, instead of doing all these little steps, we should be giving them problems to solve, and the problems should take more than one day to solve, and the thinking should be really deep instead of this list of steps, and a lot of the math that was in the common core was based on this idea of let's make math deeper and there was this outrage at well that's not how math is supposed to be taught that's not how i learned math and and also in kindergarten all the research about kindergarten says you know it doesn't really matter how well they read by the end of kindergarten their social skills are the number one predictor of how well they're going to do but it's so hard to turn that into policy because every time you try, you get this pushback of, well, that's not measurable. That's not how it works. So that's a great concept or it's a really great um, comment that you made. And I'd like to like jump off of that point. I feel like that's a very kind of white, it is a white way of thinking. It's like, tell me the value, show me the cost benefit analysis to how this kindergarten class is working. Like if they can read by the end, then we know this has been a successful program. It's like, you are looking at, I think the the wrong kinds of value sometimes. Sometimes as just human beings, we need things. And we need in kindergarten and, and, and preschool, we need to be learning those kinds of social skills because that's foundational. Mm-hmm. for the rest of our lives. Reading will come. Mm-hmm. Reading will come. But I think just exactly what you're saying, this 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 notion of the cost benefit analysis can be can it can be very effective, but it can also be detrimental. Yeah. Well and it, it's hard because so many of the most important things kids need to learn you can't measure. And right. <laughs> therefore you can't make money off of it because you can't sell it. <laughs> True. Totally, totally down. Yeah. So I'm, I'm thinking that one thing we need and is more teachers from different backgrounds in the classroom. Are there any barriers to that that you've seen for getting more people of more different cultures in the classroom so kids can have examples from their culture teaching them? Yeah, I mean, there, there are, let's take the Navajo as a case study because mm-hmm. I'm familiar with them. Um, what we have is a, a population that's dissected into two, where you have about half of the population living on the reservation proper, and then the other half living in urban areas. So for the Navajo, that could be like Flagstaff, it could be Gallup, New Mexico, so, so Flagstaff, Arizona, Gallup, New Mexico, Farmington, 
New Mexico, and then larger places like Phoenix, Albuquerque, and even Salt Lake City, Los Angeles to to some extent as well. So we have these like satellite communities, but you know that's because of the the opportunities that are there. And so we see that a lot of the students that end up graduating college um, are kind of pressured to go into different kinds of fields. Some that some that make more money, and I think this is a big problem is that when you're talking about these these students from diverse backgrounds racially and even uh, socioeconomically they want to make money they want to leave poverty they want to better their condition and when they look at teaching it's like although a noble profession and very much needed in our society we don't fund it well enough to attract those people and so we do see that the, the people who end up coming, who become teachers, a lot of them have already come from stable middle class backgrounds. They might already be in a stable relationship with a partner or a spouse that can support the the teacher, and it makes it actually work. Otherwise, being a, alone and or, you know single and trying to 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 get by on a teacher's salary in some states is very very difficult. Added to the fact that you've maybe if you're coming from a racially diverse background or even a lower socioeconomic status, you've probably had to take out loans. You've probably had to take out loans for school. And so that makes it all the more difficult to want to take on teaching because you're like, the salary is not high enough for me to take on those, to pay back those loans and simultaneously become a teacher because those those salaries are low. And then I have to pay for a lot of things out of my pocket. Like some some districts don't and pay for all the things up front. And so these are things, the burden then falls to the teacher. They've gone through this training. They want to be the best teachers. They want to make the experience the best for the kids. And because of that passion, they're willing to put in their own time and money. And I just think that's that's hard for, for a lot of, of, of uh, students of color and, and students that come from, from, from a lower socioeconomic status. It's definitely a problem. It's, yeah, it's a problem. Yeah. <laughs> And so, like, this gets to, like, the, the social policy aspect or the structural uh, thing that I've been thinking about, right, is that if we value, if we truly value the children, as many politicians say they do, like, oh, we've got to think of the children. That's why we're doing this thing. If we, if we really did that, then we would be investing heavily into the kinds of social institutions that actually help children, Right? So it would be education and it would be teacher training programs and it would be higher salaries for teachers, mm-hmm. not necessarily administrators, but the teachers themselves. And this, if we had the same kind of status as someone who, who is an entrepreneur, that's a teacher, mm-hmm. that would be a huge shift in our society. And we don't, we don't quite have that same status. Like as teachers, you're like, oh, you're a teacher? Oh, great. But if they're like, wow, you're a teacher? That's like, and everyone was like, that's amazing. And... It pays well too. That would it would totally change our whole sociological perception of what teaching would be in our society. And so I do take some cues off of what they've done in some Scandinavian countries like Finland, where they've turned things around. Or like, hey, yes, you need to have at least a master's degree, but we are going to be giving you the salaries that are commensurate or commensurate with that kind of degree. Mm-hmm. Like you deserve it. You are you are bringing forth the next generation, and by doing so. You're making our society better. 
I'm part of a Facebook group of kindergarten teachers, and one teacher from Finland got on and posted a picture of her classroom. It about killed the rest of us. It was so, it was the most beautiful, beautiful classroom, all wooden, giant windows, huge loft in the. It was like it was sad. I wanted to cry. <laughs> and, and 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 really, it's not a question of if we can do it. We we could do it here. We could so do it in the United States. The only thing is is a lack of political will, and and understanding some of the history of our country. And so this this kind of gets at this this intersection. Then when it comes to race, it's because for a lot of folks, socioeconomic status and race are really interconnected. And people, because again of this individualistic mentality, they don't want their taxes going to people who are poor, and they don't want them to going to people of color because they see them as too different and they see them as undeserving because you've earned your poverty. It's not, it's not something that's happened to you. And I think that's a really big misunderstanding about how society works because we see that a lot of people who are in poverty work very, very hard. It's just that there's a lot of structural barriers that keep them from achieving uh, a higher socioeconomic status. And so because of that, it's like, we see that the, the most rich in our society have been able to, I would say, weasel weasel out of paying their fair share in their taxes, um, and and helping out, you know, folks in the in the most precarious situations when it comes to education. So it's just like, let's just do our part. I mean, we this is how this this is the price of society. Taxes are the price of society. We just need to figure out. Like who needs who needs to pay what at what amount and what we're putting it into? I think we put a lot of money into killing people instead of saving people. A lot of people into our our military industrial complex instead of into uh, the institution of education. So let me ask you one more question. So let's say I, as a white teacher, have a class full of non-white students. What would be your advice to me to be a better teacher for them? I think for for something that I've looked at is is a lot of personal self reflection, uh, critical self reflection, and understanding like your own like positionality, right? Where you've come from. What is my history? Where do where does my biography intersect with history? How did I come to this point that I'm at? And really understanding that you got there not not just because of the work that you did. That is true. But there's a lot of things, structural things that pushed you up. And then to think, are those structural things still there? Because when you get into that situation as a white teacher and say, you know what? If you work as hard as I did, you'll have the same kind of success as I did. And it's like that. You can't promise that. You just can't do that. And so looking at... The culture of these students and saying, what is it about their, these cultures that I can use to replace what the white kind of educational institution system says I have to do, right? What is it about this, their culture there that is just so, so inherent in this system that's going on here that it would be completely against um, that culture if I were to impose my way of thinking and impose my structure. And, and that's what's interesting about the, the, the institution of education is it, it's such a process, process of socialization into pushing us into what the quote-unquote ideal citizen should look like that we need to critically reflect on what does, <clears throat> excuse me, what does that citizen 
or ideal citizen actually have to look like? Does it have to look like me? And I think that the, the right answer, if we want to believe that we live in a democracy, if we want to believe we're, we're living in a culture of equality and multiculturalism, that we have to say, my voice is as important as theirs, but I have to use my privilege to lift that voice up because it's been disenfranchised. And these are kids, right? These are kids and it's hard to, to like, to, to think like they know better than me. Um, I think uh, Paulo Freire and, and some of his work kind of gets at that too, when he's talking about that kind of critical pedagogy and coming to that conscience and, and realizing that critical consciousness and saying like, we have to move away from the banking model of education and really come to understand each other at a completely different humanistic level uh, of equality and and learning both of us at the same time simultaneously and i think i think it's a beautiful promise and i think that that my white allies are up to the challenge i think teachers want they most teachers want to do these kinds of things it's just it's just a question of 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 finding someone who will help to enable that to actually happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was just reading today how important communication is. And, mm-hmm. and so that, that the most important thing children learn that builds their brain is their language acquisition and how you can't really, you can't really measure that. And we as teachers are just need to be talking to our kids more. And so as you were talking, I just imagined this wonderful classroom where we're all communicating about who we are and where we're going and how we want to get there. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> Love that idea. I just think that's that'd be such a cool way to see, you know, early education flourish. It would just be so cool. Yeah. Well, thank you, James. And I wish you luck on your campaign. <laughs> thanks. I appreciate it. And thanks for doing this. No problem. Anytime. Uh, I think you're doing awesome. Great work. Um, I'm so glad to, to be a part of this podcast today. <laughs> you're welcome. If you want to learn more about James, you can visit his website at singerforsenate.com. And thank you for all that great insight that he gave us today. Oh, you can find us at kindergartenkiosk.com. Thank you so much for listening. Bye, everyone. Kindergarten Kiosk is a proud member of the Education Podcast Network, a network of podcasts for educators by educators. For more information, visit edupodcastnetwork.com. That's E-D-U podcastnetwork.com. Now can I listen to it?